Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today in the studio we have a translator. Now we very rarely have translators on the Vintage Podcast, um, so I was really keen to hear from Nikki Hardman, who is a very prolific um, translator, and she has recently translated this book for us called Our Story, A Memoir of Love and Life in China. Um, we have a huge amount of fans of translated fiction in the Vintage Office, and I really can't overemphasize um, the real beauty and unique experience you get from reading um, a book in translation it can often be a path um, for translators fraught with obstacles and um, hard negotiations but it's also when you when you read it this this world that you don't usually get to hear from and it kind of rephrases the English language sometimes in, into this really beautiful creative multi-dimensional um, reading experience. So today on the podcast we have her editor uh, Nick talking to uh, Nikki Hardman about her journey of translating this beautiful book. I'll leave the two of them to tell you more about the book and the translating process. Here is Nick and Nikki. Hi, my name's Nick. I'm an editor at Vintage, and in particular, I'm the editor on uh, its book, Our Story, which is a Chinese graphic memoir uh, that we're publishing in May. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by the English translator of Our Story, Nikki Harmon, to discuss the book and uh, more in depth, maybe the life and work of being a translator. So hello, Nikki. Hello. Sorry for dragging you down here. We're, we're in a very dark basement on what must be the, the, the sort of most beautiful, warmest day of the year so far. So thank you so much for, um, for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Um, I, I, think, I think we should definitely kick things off by um, introducing our story uh, and, and also paying tribute to, to what an unusual and uniquely charming book uh, this is. It's probably something that's a bit difficult to, to get across in a, in a podcast without the visuals. But if anyone's listening uh, and you have a computer near you, do do sort of Google our story, Rao Pingru, because it's a very, very visual, beautiful book. Um, as the title suggests, this, this is the story of more than one person. In fact, it's the story of, of the author, Rao Pingru, and his marriage to his wife, Meitang. Um Pingru is, is 26 when he sees Meitang in a window putting on lipstick. And from that moment, he's besotted. Their marriage uh, then spans almost 60 years and plays out against the rather grand and um, well, often tragic history of China's 20th century. Um, I think for me, what's really fascinating about this book is, is, is obviously um, Pingru's age. He started working on this book when he was 88, uh, which is when Meitang um, very sadly passed away. And he, he realised that because of the difficulties of their life, um, some of the, the difficulties of the Cultural Revolution and their constant moving and lacking, lack of possessions, um, that, that after Meitang died, there would be no record of their, their life together. And so uh, Rao Pingru started writing and, and started drawing these very beautiful um, pictures of their life together. So, so in some ways, um, this book is a memorial uh, to Pingru and, and Meitang's epic romance um, told through these very exquisite detailed paintings and, and handwritten notes. Um, editorially, it's, uh, I think, uh, a very interesting book because how, how do you position this? It's not a graphic novel. Uh, and it's not a straightforward memoir. Uh, I think I think uh, coming to it as an editor, one of the interesting things I think is that 
it, 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 it is so unique. Um, I think first and foremost, I would describe this uh, as, a, as, a, as a love letter. I think this is something we've discussed before, Nikki. Um, it's, a, it's a work of art, folk art, and also it's a, a very powerful uh, historical document. Um, I think in some ways it sort of cuts through the complexity of, of Chinese history. Um, Nikki, I just wonder, as a, as a translator, um, you already work very, very closely with Chinese literature. What, was there a particular attraction to, to this project for you? Um, in a word, it's beautifully written. It's not just a moving love story, which is luscious to look at because of the wonderful pictures. It's also beautifully written. I, in the last 20 years, I've translated a whole range of literature, fiction, non-fiction, some poetry, uh, most of it contemporary. And when I came to this, I sighed audibly and told my friends, how wonderful, I can write good English. <laughs> no more obscenities, no swearing. This is just a gorgeously written book. Uh, so that's one of the things that attracted me. I mean, there are lots of other things. We'll come on to those. Um, and do you ever work with, with graphic novels in, in, in China? Is a... I've never worked with a graphic novel. And one of the very nice things about this book is that when he's talking about things which were hard for me to translate and visualise, like, for instance, snacks that they used to eat in the 1930s and 40s, and maybe they don't eat them or don't mm. prepare them in quite the same way anymore, I could see the pictures. Mm. Also, dictionaries are quite often not very accurate, or you get a whole load of different translations for one ingredient. So the pictures were hugely hel helpful, mm. and he does love his food. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so there's lots of descriptions of wonderful street snacks that he and Mei Tang went out in their carefree youth to, to buy and eat on the street. Well, this is, uh, I mean, uh, I think it's one of the things I find very interesting about, about the book is it's is it sort of unashamedly... Um, soaked in, in, in Chinese culture. And as, 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 you, as you know, food is such an important part of, mm. of Chinese culture and it really does form its kind of centre of conversation um, amongst friends. And I, I sort of felt that this book is... Um, you can read it um, as someone who knows nothing about China and it, and it really does give you a very gradual introduction to all of the, well, all mm. of the big themes, but, mm. but you kind of get a, get a sense of, of what Chinese culture means and has meant over the last um, hundred years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the war years, for example. Uh, I mean, I thought I knew all about the wars that ravaged China in the first half of the century, but uh, reading all the narrow escapes that uh, Ping Ru had when he was fighting and seeing the pictures and mm. actually showing the pictures to a cousin of mine who used to be in the RAF, who was deeply impressed by all the narrow escapes that Ping Ru had had. So it really does bring history alive. But there's something else as well. It's not just food. It's his very traditional upbringing. Mm. His family was steeped in Confucian values and so you see this kind of early 20th century Confucianism played out in a family context. Mm. So there were the family festivals, there was, a, the, there was the kitchen god, but there was the values that his parents brought him up to believe uh, in, like never waste a grain of rice. Someone has sweated to produce that grain of mm. rice, never waste food, and so on. And also he had a very good classical education 
and he loves some of the classical poets and he quotes them extensively, mm. which I have to say was difficult for me. <laughs> I was not steeped in classical Chinese um, culture and uh, I sent a f- very few questions to Ping Ru, which he very graciously answered for me. Um, but I mean, the classical poetry is not easy for contemporary Chinese. Mm. It's only someone of his age who had that kind of upbringing who can really appreciate the uh, the complexity and beauty of it. Mm. And how, how does it feel to to essentially be translating someone's entire life? Uh, well, I think I've said something about his his childhood was very happy. Mm. Um, his marriage, um, hard for us to believe, but it was arranged. Yeah. And when, a couple of years ago, he did a lot of TV appearances because his book appeared in Chinese. And <clears throat> this was one of the things that his interviewers and the studio audiences found really quite hard to, to believe. Mm. Such a happy marriage. And it was entirely arranged. Mm. He'd only seen her a couple of times before and probably never actually spoken to her. Um, and uh, so there's that. And, well, then there's the political difficulties that we'll come on to. Mm. As we talked about how this book actually gives you a, a really uh, alive, lively picture of what life was like in China for almost the whole of the 20th century. Um, when he then loses her, she gets diabetes, she gets dementia. He becomes his her chief carer. Mm. And when she dies, I was in tears. And I have never, of all the books I've translated, none of them, however sad they are, has reduced me to tears. And I think what it was is that he's so, he dares to be very honest. It's actually rather unusual to find anyone who can so nakedly express their their feelings, their love for someone, their anguish at her death, Mm. his anguish at her death. It's... I uh, found it intensely moving, and I felt, as I often do when I'm translating, what a great privilege yeah. to read his words. Yeah, I think he's an absolutely fascinating author. Um, you, you you mentioned to me earlier about there there are YouTube videos of him playing the harmonica and singing singing in English. Uh, he's got a real kind of passion for life, and, yes. and I think that's one of the things that really comes through in the book and through your translation is is just throughout all the troubles that they have. Yeah. Um, in six years of their marriage, um, they, they, you know, he, he, and and and, and Maytang, they, they do really strive to 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 live a, a full life mm. um, together. And this book, in in many ways, you know, the beautiful pictures and and the luxury he takes in the language, feels like uh, part of that that kind of journey that they mm. go on. Mm. He, he's very funny when he, on one of the videos I've seen, he's playing his mouth organ. And he he says, now I'm going to sing you a song, song in English. And you realise that all of this is done without notes. He's standing yeah. up. It's only about, he must have been about 92 when he did the video. Mm. And uh, he has this studio audience who are all young people, absolutely spellbound. And he says, this is the song that I wooed my wife with. Because in those days, you couldn't say stuff like, I love you. It just wasn't. She would have run a mile. <laughs> so he sings Rosemary in English. Yeah. And it's so sweet. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned, um, we well, mentioned 
politics and 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 some of the sort of historical uh, elements that are in the book it is in many ways i feel like th- this is this is a this is a historical document uh it does give you a, a an overview of um the 20th century in china but in many ways those things are well they're, they're not incidental but they they're in the background uh to um to the story um what what is the kind of do you know what the reception uh, of this book was like in in China? Uh, it's done hugely well. Yeah. Uh, hence all the TV appearances. But I don't know what he uh, decided for various reasons not to write down. Mm. He spends twenty years parted from Mei Tang and his children. Uh, because he's sent off to do re-education through labour. And this, I know, will read slightly oddly to the Western reader who's not familiar with Chinese history. He took a very definite decision not to go into who it was who made what were obviously false allegations Mm. against him and some of the awful privations that he suffered. He just passes over them very lightly. Mm. Um, Basically, we learn that he's in re-education for more than 20 years. Uh, For some of those years, he gets home once a year for a fortnight, which is probably a week by the time he actually completes the journey and Mm. then he has to go back again. He nearly dies of starvation, which again, he's very lightly passed over um, during the years of famine. 1958, 1958 to 1961. Um, the last half of the time, he's uh, in some kind of a workshop, which involves, I think, a chemical factory making mm. paints. But the f- the first half of the period, he's doing hard labor on a dike, um, shoring up dike defenses. So there's an awful lot that he decides not to write down, and I think we have to respect that. These mm. these things that went on in China in the 50s and the 60s, 70s, all of the Cultural Revolution, they are still very sensitive issues. Mm. He still has uh, a large family, alive and well. Mm. He's decided there are certain things that he's not going to make public. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before uh, other translations you've done. You're a very prolific translator. You've translated for, for a for a very long time. Um, what, just quite curious as to what, what is the process that goes into translating a book like this? Where do you start? Where do you begin? Um, and how long does it take? Um, how long it takes depends how long the book is. Anything from six months to a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually. I have done some shorter books in less than six months. Um and what's the process? I receive the book, I look at it, I immediately demand uh, some kind of a electronic file. <laughs> because honestly, the whole process of looking at a book and then looking up on the, at the screen is exhausting for the eyes. Mm. Uh, so I work from the electronic document, I do a draft, then I do another draft, then I revise it again. And again, I might easily do five drafts, including final polishing. Then there's the editing. 
uh, process. I, I find the first draft is the hardest. People always ask me if I've read the end of the book before I translate it, and occasionally I haven't. And that is really fun. I'm doing a book at the moment that I deliberately didn't read the oh, wow. end of the book because I, I'm very um, intrigued by how this author... Um, how he leads to a conclusion which I've been told, but I don't know whether it's true. That's the way the, the novel concludes. <laughs> In this case, I did read it. So it's a question of polishing, polishing, working yeah. on it, more polishing, mm. and working with the editor, and then working to help with the promotion as well. Yeah. I'm just wondering, for those, for those who might be listening and are interested in a career as, as a translator, what was your route into translation? Uh... Oh, I did all sorts of things first. And then I found a book that I really wanted to translate. And everyone said to me, as I say to other people, don't give up the day job. And it was actually quite a number of years before I gave up the day job. So uh, there is now much more translation work out there from yeah. Chinese than there used to be. And if people are really interested, they should go to a website called paperrepublic.org where they can feast their eyes on a whole number of translated short stories, blogs about translation, blogs about contemporary authors and so on, and take it from there mm. and then write to one of us and ask our advice. Mm. But I, I did start slowly. I got the first book published, which was Hong Ying's K, The Art of Love. And I sat back and thought the contracts would come rolling in. <laughs> about 15 years later, they did. So it's a slow business. Yeah, but you mentioned Paper Republic, and it feels it feels to me that the, the Chinese translation community there is a real community there. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about translating from a what they call a less translated language mm. like Chinese, Japanese, Polish, and so on. Mm. Um, you do have the chance to get to know each other, help each other out, mentor each other, pass jobs to each other. And I find that hugely rewarding. Mm. And that's all part of the the promotion work that I do if I've got a novel, uh, a translated novel. I, I help promote it, but that may involve talking with other translations, translators at literary festivals. It can involve all sorts of activities. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there might be some people listening who, who sort of maybe maybe a bit timid about translation and, and wonder why, why should they read books in translation when there's so many books in English? Just one final question then. What, what for you is, is um, do readers stand to gain by, by reading translated works? Uh, two reasons. There's some incredibly good uh, writing coming out of China, fiction, mm -hmm. coming out of China right now. And... Reading contemporary Chinese fiction opens a window on another world. I feel it's a huge privilege to be able to translate it. And I think it's a, a world and a literature, most of all a literature. You're not reading sociology, you're reading mm. fiction. Go read it, enjoy it. It should be enjoyable, it is enjoyable. Excellent. Thank you so much, Nikki, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Vintage Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, our story is published on the 10th of May 2018. As always, you can let us know what you thought about the podcast uh, and share it with your friends over on Twitter. If you want to tweet us, we're at 
vintage books. Don't forget to subscribe for your weekly dose of bookish insider stories and interviews. I have been Lena Norms and until next time.